The virus doesn't know whether you're a Republican or Democrat, so it shouldn't be a political issue at all. But it is, and that's really been extremely harmful, and I think does encourage this rigidity and thought process. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Okay, Fred and Bill, once again, thanks for spending some time with us. And uh, as we look at the past week and, and some weeks ahead, we'd love to get your perspective on some new guidance and new information coming out about booster vaccines and um, sort of what, how people should be thinking about it and about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and what it might be paired with. So why don't we start there? Well, David, I thought one of the most interesting things to come out that's been news reported come out of a statement from the meeting yesterday that the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee said is that things are getting very confusing when it comes to boosters and that one of the major considerations that they are taking now in making new recommendations is how can they reduce this confusion by coming to some kind of common level of understanding on uh, what boosters mean to different people. I think they're very afraid of if they have different rules for each different type of vaccine in every different situation that people are just going to throw up their arms and not know what to do. And that's exactly what's happening. I think that's a great premise to be operating under because that is what is happening from the feedback we get uh, within our network. So uh, Fred, Bill, what's, what's the best guidance for people and organizations? Oh, geez. <laughs> um, the, right now, I think the best guidance is maybe just hold your breath for a week and let things kind of settle out. Because here's where things stand. As we know, for people who are at extremely high risk, meaning they have a diagnosis of some condition that causes them, causes them to be very clearly immune compromised, those people should get the booster dose. That's And in that case, they're not even really calling it a booster. It's just it's completing the series. Um, they're saying that you really need three shots to have a full series vaccination. So that is the, but that's for a very, very small group of people. So that one's not too confusing. Here comes the confusing part is now two weeks ago, um, the FDA and the CDC said that if you got Pfizer, that you need to have a booster if you're in a high-risk group, which was left fairly nebulous, uh, down to the point of if your physician decides that you're at high risk, then you, you count, or you are in a uh, situation that causes you to be at very high risk of exposure. That includes things like medical profession, um, restaurant, food service workers, and people who are in institutional settings. So it's, it's, it's actually, given the way the, wor- the wording was done, almost anybody could qualify if they you know, talk to their doctor and they decide they've got something that makes them at higher risk. So that's where things stood with Pfizer as of a couple of weeks ago. Now, the, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee met yesterday, and they said basically the same thing for Moderna, that if you're in a high-risk uh, you have a high-risk medical condition, or you're in a position uh, that puts you at high risk of being exposed, then you should get a third dose, Now, the, which is the booster dose, not a, not a third dose of the primary series. 
So it, now here's where it gets confusing is because the recommendation for Pfizer is that people get a full dose as your booster dose. But for Moderna, you're only going to need a half dose for a booster dose. So that makes it a little confusing. And then now the single dose vaccine, Johnson & Johnson. The question is, though, there is more data that a larger group of people would benefit from an additional dose of J&J. &J. The additional thing, and this is where it gets yet again confusing, is that the committee is also considering whether it is acceptable to boost the J&J &J with one of the mRNA vaccines. Um, and then an NIH paper just last week that said, yes, you get a significantly higher antibodies if you boost J&J &J with an mRNA vaccine. So that's why I say that most companies, most people should just take a deep breath and wait for a week or so and let all this settle out. Because the time course from here is that the FDA advisory committee is going to make their recommendation. The commissioner of the FDA will then have a formal, the formal signing of the amended emergency use authorizations for all three vaccines. But then before anybody can start acting on the EUA, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices at CDC will meet in order to make the specific paper that says, here's how you use it. The CDC uh, director will sign off on that probably towards the end of next week. And then we'll know where we where everything stands exactly. Because a lot of what I've said today is conjecture, especially as it's related to Moderna and J&J. &J, but we'll know for sure probably by the end of next week. Yeah, Bill, Bill you really nicely summarized the issues. And, and you've got to, you have to ask, what are we trying to accomplish? Now, if we're trying to prevent people from dying on the boosters, will probably be most beneficial for those that are significantly immunocompromised and perhaps those over age 65, which occasionally still can die if they get a large enough dose. Um, the other the question is, do we want to try to use the vaccine to slow the spread of infection? And if we talk about that, that's when the frontline workers, uh, if they get a booster, they're less likely to pick up the virus in their nasopharynx and less likely to spread it to those that are not vaccinated. So it, it depends, and I think there's a very important balance there, and will take time for the experts to actually, there is no right or wrong answer, but at least to agree on what the balance will be. And let me ask uh, both of you, where does the National Institute of Health, NIH, fit in because they've become rather vocal, certainly in the last week or two. Well, remember that all of these, well, the, the CDC and the NIH are both activities of the Department of Health and Human Services. Both of them are primarily research and uh, research organizations with very little legal authority. CDC, in fact, has, has the only legal strict legal authority that CDC has is in relation to um, uh, quarantines for certain international travel. Beyond that, they have the bully pulpit. The enforcement is the FDA, which is an independent agency. Um, they're the only ones that have the true enforcement rules related to any of this activity. Well, just to your point, Bill, about the confusion, 
Um, I, I'm not sure those distinctions are recognized by the public. And the NIH was certainly giving um, its views on the guidelines for booster vaccines. And does this go to your point, everyone should just sort of wait a week, take a pause, and, and wait for these viewpoints to be reconciled and clear guidance to be issued? Exactly. And just to, I, I didn't want to throw this in with the previous rambling I did, but the um, the other piece that is in there is the the FDA committee looking at vaccination on children, the 5 to 11 age group that has not yet received any vaccination authorization. That, the, the Pfizer application for an EUA amendment to allow vaccination of the younger kids, 5 to 11, has been submitted, and the EU and the FDA actually said they have a uh, advisory committee meeting scheduled for the 26th, so just under two weeks from now. And most people expect that the ad, the advisory committee will will extend the emergency use authorization to the pediatric ages, so everybody over over five will be uh, eligible for vaccination. And that'll take kind of the same time course as everything else. The FDA will meet on on Thursday or Tuesday. By the end of that week, the commissioner will uh, sign, or the administrator of the FDA will sign off on it. And then the um, it'll go to CDC. The, uh, the, the advisory committee on immunization practices will put out their guidance that the CDC director will sign off on. So probably sometime in that first week in November, we'll have vaccine available for everybody in the country except uh, newborn through age four. Uh, the one the one thing that's going to be interesting with the, the younger, the middle pediatric group, the 5 to 11, is right now Pfizer has said that they want to immunize with a third of an adult dose. That's a little bit awkward to put into mass production on a rapid basis unless you just tell people, yeah, yeah just draw up a third of a vial. Or, that's going to be interesting how they, how they work that one. Yeah, David, just, just a comment on the uh, NIH and the CDC. I think you can think of them as uh, experts, the scientific experts that are advising the FDA. Uh, when I have a consultant come in who's uh, got an expertise that I don't have, I listen to them. And I think it's the better, uh, the wisest choice for the FDA to listen to the NIH and the CDC. And I, in general, the CDC and the NIH have uh, been coordinated in their message uh, and have integrated all the scientific data in their recommendations. So I think that's the way you should view the NIH and the CDC. That's very, very helpful. Fred, I want to go back to your reference to um, healthcare workers, frontline workers at the hospitals. And I know we've covered this topic before, but I'm putting this in the bucket of lessons learned during the pandemic. If we face this problem again, what, what is it we should be taking away in order to gain people's confidence and trust in um, what I'll refer to as what the medical experts are saying and what they're telling people to do? There, there has to be some broader lesson here. And so I just throw that out to both of you. Yeah, David, um... This, there's a fundamental uh, uh, way that decisions are made. And this is uh, very germane to healthcare in general 
And as, a, as someone who works in quality and safety, I've really studied metacognition. That is how you come to decisions. How should you do that most accurately and most effectively? We know that in healthcare, 30% of all serious harm and deaths are the consequence of errors in decision-making. So as physicians, we need to learn how to make decisions that are accurate and are the best for our patients. And it's very interesting that it's no coincidence that among physicians, 90 to 95% are vaccinated because they have been taught how to synthesize data and how to be mentally flexible in taking in new information and recalibrating. The problem has been that uh, certain politicians and talk show hosts and individuals, what happens is they come to a premature conclusion and then they anchor on that conclusion and they they actually block the input of new information that might change their mind. It's called cherry-picking the data. And as a consequence of these behaviors, they stay fixed on a vaccine is, is dangerous or the vaccine is interfering with my freedom. You know, the concept of freedom is very complicated and it's unfortunate that it has been uh, really promoted with regards to the vaccine, with regards to the face mask and other infection control practices. Because think about secondhand smoke. We, we used to be able to use, people used to be able to smoke anywhere. Now they understand that in a closed space, they're not allowed to smoke. Um, that was hard to come by. Some people did claim individual freedom. Uh, but are we free to give other people cancer? Well, it's the same with these infections. We have to take consider into consideration our fellow man and those that are susceptible and those that might die from the infection. And we have to uh, really subjugate our, our individual wills for the good of everyone. And it is, it's unfortunate that we've had to come to mandates, but persuasion when there is cherry picking, when there is anchoring, simply will not work because people are not receptive to new information. So I think that's the fundamental problem here, being open to new information and changing your mind based on that new data. The other thing I would add is that it's, in addition to that, there is kind of a pure political problem that comes into it, in that in the, today's polarized society, once a, a concept is associated either direction with one political viewpoint, there are many in society who just take the opposite and lock in on that opposite just because it is coming from the other political viewpoint. And the, that's it's, it's very much related to what Fred was saying, but I think it's a little bit of a different concept too. It's not a uh, refusal to accept new facts. It's a fixation on a single viewpoint based on the politics of that viewpoint. And that's really been a, a huge problem with us. And, and to be honest, on both sides of the aisle in this case. One other thing that I'd, I'd like to throw out, which came from some of my discussions, when we respectively were growing up, we had trusted family physicians that have had been with us for many years, been with our family members, etc., 
uh, at least here in New York, there's a wonderful pediatric practice, and one of their complaints is that um, the children they treated are now in college and still want to come back to the practice. And it strikes me with our healthcare system that we've lost that connective tissue of a trusted doctor who's been with us for many, many years, who can give us information, explain, to your point, Fred, you know, what they themselves are doing, what their family members are doing, and communicate. Yeah, David, I, I would agree. And actually, uh, I have been working, uh, applying uh, lean principles to reduce wasted activities that take away from what is number one, face-to-face contact between physicians and patients. And you can, by using certain efficiencies, reduce the amount of time in the electronic record and emphasize more time uh, with the actual with your patients. And I think that's uh, a value to physicians. They have a sense, more of a sense of meaning and social connectedness when they're able to actually interact face-to-face with their patients. Another major problem, uh, first of all, politicization is absolutely, uh, Bill is on target on that. Um, the virus doesn't know whether you're a Republican or Democrat, uh, so it shouldn't be a political issue at all, but it is. And that's really been extremely harmful and I think does encourage this rigidity uh, in, in thought process. So, David, I, I'm a family physician, and you know, so I have significant biases on this. I think you're exactly right on. Um, but one of the problems that we've had is that the generalist, the family physicians and the general internal medicine specialist have been the, the, the way that our system has developed that has been so, become so specialist oriented. The value of the generalist has been significantly uh, denigrated over the past really decade. Um, we don't get the, 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 the high end, the, the top of the classes are not going into ge- to generalist fields today. So people do tend to gravitate towards this, the specialist um, and the relationships just they, the way our system is, you don't have a, a tight ongoing relationship with a specialist unless you have a significant medical issue that is in that specialist's realm. So I think that that is, that's a a big issue that's affecting it. And I know I'm not trying to be commercial at all, but that's exactly why the company that I work for, that's why we exist, is because people are looking for that relationship. And I'll give both of you guys a shout out because you've worked extensively with many of the members of RAIN and clients that we have is that that, that uh, just in the remaining minutes, um, believe it or not, uh, it's not even Halloween, but a variety of companies and government agencies, etc., are planning on holiday parties. Sort of what advice would you be giving people about their plans for the holiday season? I, I think you have to be very, very strategic in how you do this. I predict the Delta variant is still going to be floating around. And if there are individuals that are unvaccinated, they could become a super spreader uh, in such events. And so the number of people is very important. You've got to keep it to a small number because that will reduce the probability of someone entering the area that is asymptomatic spreader. Secondly, you can, uh, you could, uh, require that everyone that participates be vaccinated 
or secondly, if they're not vaccinated, they have to at least have two antigen tests uh, within 24 hours that are negative. The good thing about the Delta variant, because there's such high concentrations in the nose, the antigen test actually is very uh, is quite sensitive to detecting those that would be a super spreader. So I think three things are keep the events relatively small and that make sure as many people as possible are vaccinated. Those that are under vaccinated should be tested to assure they're not carriers. And finally, I would recommend if you can have your events outdoors or in a very large open space that's well ventilated. So the reason I wanted to jump in, Bill, I want to get obviously your thoughts is the NBA season is opening up and none of the teams play in open air stadiums. Um, And um, I'm a lifelong Knicks fan. I'll admit I've been suffering for a long time. Uh, And preseason, it was a packed house at Madison Square Garden uh, to see the Detroit Pistons play, not one of the better teams or the marquee teams in the NBA. And I think we're going to be seeing this and Certainly the questions are coming up if, uh, you know, if you have all these events and movie theaters are opening up and restaurants, et cetera, but certainly we'll call it the venues. Uh, There are more concerts that are being scheduled, Fred, uh, these days. And, um, you know, trying to square the circle. Um, And I think I take your point. Everyone should be vaccinated. Venue matters. I assume also air circulation within the venue matters. And Bill, how, how do you begin to square this up? Because there's a lot of inconsistency in the real world. Well, I think that the biggest thing is you got to look at things as a defense in depth. The other term that's been used is the Swiss cheese defense. You know there are going to be holes that the virus could get through a hole. But if you're taking the you don't line up your pieces of Swiss cheese and you lay them one on top of another, the chances of a single hole going all the way through the stack is pretty small. So if you can get have only vaccinated people there, that's a huge thing. And then following what Fred said, having a small number of people and I would put that small relative to the size of the place that you have. You want to have it where people can easily socially distance. Um, they don't feel shoulder to shoulder compacted in the location. The bigger the bigger it is, the, the better. Um, and then uh, testing, if you're going to let anybody in, I, I've generally been counseling the firms that I work with, um, don't do that. Don't don't let people in who are not vaccinated. The big question becomes, do you do even the people who are vaccinated, especially if you're bringing in family members, um, if spouses, etc., uh, do you test them anyway? And many, many are doing exactly that. Again, it's this, it's this defense in depth. So you add this layer of not only requiring vaccination, but you have everyone go do the, a $10 antigen test before they come into the event. Um, those are things that you can do. So making sure the space is good, you've got very good air exchange, you've got filtration with that air exchange, um, that you've got people who are vaccinated, um, that you are social distancing, all of those things uh, put all run together. And so if you've got something slips through one layer, it's doubtful that it'll slip through all of the layers. Yeah, one other layer that we didn't mention, I think is very important, is masks. If you're going to a large event where you don't have to talk, uh, you should definitely be wearing them or you don't have to uh, be interacting uh, uh, very closely. I think masks make a lot of sense. 
And uh, actually, there there were some nice guidelines on music recently, which showed that if you put a mask on uh, wind instruments, you dramatically reduce the spread. And if singers uh, wear masks, they also dramatically reduce uh, aerosol release. And so I, I think masks are another key tool in the Swiss cheese model that in certain circumstances uh, should be also used. Which brings another thing to me, and that is look at the rate that's happening in the area around you. You know, early on through this, we used the 11025. You know, that's cases per 100,000 per day as the differentiation between essentially very low, low, medium, and high. Um, a month ago, a little over a month ago now, the CDC changed that and they said we're going to use the the discriminators as high as greater than 100 cases per 100,000 per week um, and substantial is greater than 50 cases per 100,000 per week and if you're if you are above those levels you should wear a mask in any kind of public setting so um, I think that we're we the whole country has been above those levels we're getting now to where some places and maybe by Christmas we may have a substantial number of locations that are below the level of substantial tra- transmission, which is a 50 cases per 100,000 or 7.14 cases per 100,000 per day. If you're below that level, I'd feel a lot more comfortable about not necessarily masking um, in those kinds of settings. If you're above that level, then um, masks are, are a very, very good idea. Um, but below 7.14 cases per 100,000 per day, I'd, I would feel very comfortable having the um, uh, having the, the holiday gatherings and probably even below the, the, the 14.14. I'm, I'm going out or 14.28. I'm going a little bit out of a limb there. But I think if you've got a fully vaccinated group and you are below 14.28, I'd feel fairly comfortable in that setting too. That's great. And just my last question, because I happen to be visiting uh, related to these types of functions. I uh, had a meeting at one of New York City's leading hospitals and um, going in, obviously they they have a a mask wearing requirement. But interestingly, Fred, at the registration desk, uh, they took my temperature. And is that something you guys would advise as well? Unfortunately, a single temperature determination, I actually have looked at this in some detail, is only about 30% sensitive. So you'll pick up about one in three cases of COVID, active COVID, using that. It's, it, it helps a little bit, but you're going to let in uh, two-thirds of the people. So um, it's, it's another element of the Swiss cheese. I don't know, Bill, what do you think? Well, I think we actually talked about this early on in some of our very earliest podcasts, um, that temperature, checking a temperature is not technically very useful for catching things, but it does show that you show that you care. It shows that you're looking. It makes people think twice. When you go in and get your temperature taken, someone's also thinking, oh, do I have a, you know, do I have a fever? Do I have a cough? Do I have a... So from the standpoint of just Showing that you're doing something, it's useful. From the, are you actually going to catch anything? Yeah, less likely. So, as a more or less, both as a psychological benefit to the to the people, and also maybe to deter those who are sick from trying to gain entry. Uh, exactly. Okay. I want to thank you both. I want to thank you both for staying so closely on top of the issues because there is a great deal of confusion and the advice. So thank you again 
for your time and your public service. Fred, Bill, stay safe. David, thank you. Thank you, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. 